And it's worth turning in your Bibles if you haven't left them open to 1 John chapter 2 and we'll be starting at verse 18. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18 which is on page 1226 of the church Bibles. There's something about the last moments of any event that makes them seem fairly desperate. I'm not sure if you've noticed that. Whatever, whatever situation you're in, it's the last moments of that situation that all seem quite rushed and everything seems to unfold in those last moments. Whether it be as, as we uh, near Christmas, as we're, we're told how many Christmas days are left, shopping days are left, and we see that number go down and down and we think, I really need to do something about that soon, and it gets down to one and you see all these crazy people rushing around the shops with just moments left to buy the presents they should have sorted out months ago. Or whether it be uh, that all-night study session where you're cramming for exams that has taken you a whole year to learn all the things that you need to learn uh, for that exam and yet you are convinced over a few hours between midnight and maybe six in the morning you can cover the territory with a little assistance from caffeine. It's those last moments that seem to matter the most. Well, you see it in uh, football, which I'm slowly uh, coming to terms with here. I don't call it soccer as often anymore. But you see in those moments of extra time where the, the uh, ref or whoever it is holds up how many minutes are left after the, the 90 minutes has passed and you see all sorts of crazy things happen in those last minutes. All the defenders are substituted off for the team that's behind and even the goalkeeper suddenly thinks he's a forward and he charges down the field thinking he's going to be the one to kick the winning goal. Everything seems to hang on those last few moments. Well, as we come uh, to 1 John, we come to a moment just like that, where things seem just as urgent, just as desperate. If you remember last week, as, as we were looking at 1 John, we came to verse 17 and we were told about our world, this world that we are surrounded by, that it is passing away that we are in the last moments for this world, this whole human system established in opposition to God, its passions, its prides, as we saw last week, with its ruler, Satan, all of that is soon to pass away. It would be easy, wouldn't it? And it is easy to let the urgency of that verse, verse 17 of chapter 2, slip from our mind as we get busy in the day-to-day of life. Our world is passing away, but it doesn't seem that way on Monday morning, does it, as we wake to another week. Things seem as per normal, business as usual. And that for me is what makes verse 18 of chapter 2 so arresting. The world is passing away. And so much so that John says it is the last hour of this world. One more circuit of the big hand round the clock and all of this will pass away, he says. This is the last hour. It's an urgent statement, isn't it? Um, And you can see, as we go through 1 John, what has led to this urgency, what has set the clock ticking on this last hour. All throughout 1 John and throughout really the whole testimony of the Bible, it is made clear that the moment Jesus stepped onto this earth, the moment he breathed his first breath as a little baby boy, that last hour began ticking in his incarnation, in his life and then his death and then his mighty resurrection. The marker point for that last hour was set in place. All of this soon will end, says John. 
and Christ, who Hebrews chapter 9 tells us appeared once and for all in these last times, at the end of the ages, it says, he appeared to do away with sin, has set the clock ticking. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the decisive moment of history and having come and lived among us, having died that we might be forgiven, having been raised now as Lord, the countdown begins, the clock ticks as we live. And scripture tells us that here and now in this last hour there is only one climactic event left, one event which will tell us that the clock has stopped, that the last hour is over. And it's not the, uh, the London Olympics and it's not even something as noble as maybe peace in the Middle East that once that's in place, this last hour will be over. No, again it concerns Jesus. The one who stepped on this earth as a little baby boy will again step onto this earth as the risen king and judge. He is the marker point at either end of this last hour and now all history that we live in races towards that day when he will come again. And so given this, as John tells us that we are in the last hour, we need to realise what the big reality that shapes this moment is. It's so simple and yet so important. Jesus is Lord. If you were to sort of uh, filter down all Christian doctrine, all Christian truth that you could possibly learn at a Bible college or out of books or anywhere else, they are the three words you need to know. Jesus is Lord. That's what the Christian gospel is. And in this last hour, everything hangs on what you make of Jesus. Because having set the clock ticking by his death and resurrection and having given notice that he will bring that hour to an end when he returns, the basic question is, who do you say I am, says Jesus As the Apostle Peter says to us in Acts 2, he says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so in this final moment of our world, the human guidebook of what life is all about has been made all of a sudden very simple. With news that Christ is King and not me, everything changes. Who do you say I am, says Jesus? Christ's Lordship is the news of this hour. And we can see that lordship spreading all out, all throughout our world in this last hour. We see it if you look in a book like the book of Acts, you see the spread of that news as it races from the epicentre of Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth, we're told. And we see it in our own time as, as countries that were closed to the Bible like China, all of a sudden thousands upon thousands upon thousands are hearing this news and responding and coming to trust in Jesus as Lord. You see it in some of the poorest parts of Africa. And even amongst ourselves we see this happening. Something as simple as, uh, as Friday Club on a, on a Friday afternoon as, as people meet for a meal and for games, as, as people hear about the news that Jesus is Lord. That is happening. As students meet for Lighthouse Sunday after Sunday they are hearing that news. As the youth meet. As small groups meet, I was talking to some leaders from a small group during the week and they were talking about a discussion they'd had for half an hour one night recently where they had come to terms with this idea that Jesus is in fact Lord. It's easy in the busyness of life to miss how big this is, this spread of this news, this reality. But it's breathtaking 
This simple news is changing lives forever. Every time a single human heart responds to that news, all heaven rejoices. This is the main game at the end of time. And knowing this, John gives us this warning in verse 18. Have a look at it. Chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the anti- As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming and even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. As we speed towards the day when Christ will come again in victory and in judgement, Satan, the Antichrist, who knows he was defeated at the cross, does his worst to bring as many down with him as possible in this final hour. I was trying to think of a sort of an image of what that's like in this final hour. Satan knows that he's done. He knows that he's defeated and yet he's still got this little moment of time to do his worst. It reminded me of a game that we used to play uh, in Australia. We had a a swimming pool in our backyard, which is fairly typical in Australia. We had this game called The Last Man Standing. And essentially what you do, you get as many of your friends as possible standing around the pool and you had to try and push push each other in. And so you'd race around the pool like, like madmen trying to push each other in. And you'd sort of survive as long as you could, but you knew that moment when the sort of the centre of gravity was going way too much and it was all over for you and you're going to fall in and you'd sort of look around and you grab as many as you could and they'd go with you. That's the picture of Satan in this last hour. He knows time is up. He knows the clock is ticking. And so he does his worst with the little time he has left. And what is his activity? What does he do in this last hour? He does what he's always done. He lies. Have a look at verse 22. Scripture makes clear that from the basement of time, this is what Satan does in this world. He lies about God. He lies about God's ways. And he assumes the role that only God should have. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you see this as he says to the first man and the first woman, he lies to them. Let me read it for you. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. God lies about, Satan lies about God and then he lies about us. As it was with the first man, so it is with us. He tempts us to mistrust God's word and to assume the role of king. You will be like God. You're in charge. But the Bible makes clear that while humanity thinks that this is a glorious moment to reach, that I'm in charge, I'm responsible, some sort of declaration of autonomy from God, I'm free from him, I don't need him, seems so independent, so brave, is in fact the declaration that only a slave can make. And rather than glorious independence, it is to be under Satan's control. We are marked as his as 1 John 5:19 says it says all the world is under the control of the evil one. And as 1 John 4 puts it the spirit in a heart such as that a spirit that rejects God 
is a spirit that has the Antichrist in it. Strong words, isn't it? If you reject God, then you are under the control of Satan. It's the human spirit we saw on display last week, marked by its cravings, marked by its desires, the lust of its eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of what it has and does. These are, the, these are the Satan's calling cards in our world. These are his medals of victory. These are the enemies we saw last week that wage war against us. But what is most scary here in verses 18 to 27 is that while we saw those enemies last week, you know, the image we thought of last week of standing in a field where we have sin, the world and the devil all around us, all of a sudden we are introduced to another enemy, one where we'd least expect to find one. Do you see it there? Verse 18. Here in this last hour, in Satan's ambition to diminish Christ's glory, to lie about him and to deceive us, he goes to the heart of things. He goes to Christ's beloved, his church, his bride, and he sends, we're told in verse 18, liar after liar after liar into our midst. One of the most strange uh, phrases that's come out of uh, modern warfare is the phrase friendly fire. It's a bizarre thought really. What What it boils down to is that somehow through the confusion of war people who are supposed to be on the same side end up killing each other. It's a horrific tragedy when it happens and yet that is exactly what we're seeing here in verse 18. Within God's community, this community that's meant to be fighting against sin, the world and the devil, all of a sudden... In amongst us, Satan has planted liar after liar, we're told. And I guess the obvious question I had as I, as I read that verse is, how do you spot them? As you sort of look around the Christian community, we, we all seem pretty plain and normal, don't we? Are we meant to be sort of all insecure and every, every now and then, all the time thinking that somebody next to us is an antichrist that Satan has sent among us? How do we spot them? How can we know? Well, it's quite simple as the passage goes on. The Antichrist that Satan has sent into our midst. The problem for us is that when we hear that word Antichrist, we think all sorts of weird ideas of horns and red suits and hooves and pitchforks and all sorts of things. But the reality is far more boring. Do you see the two traits that people such as this have? As our passage goes on, first one you see in verse 22, they lie just like the one who controls them. And then they leave, we're told in verse 19. They lie and they leave. Have a look at uh, verse 22. John says, who is the liar? How do we know how to spot someone like this? Well, simple. It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist, says John. He denies the Father and the Son. Like the one who controls them, they come into the church and they teach lies about Jesus. The one who is moved by the spirit of the Antichrist is compelled to do whatever they can to deny Jesus' lordship. And throughout this letter we've seen that the primary way that those who were doing that amongst the Christians that John first wrote this letter to was that they would deny the incarnation of Jesus. We saw it way back in chapter 1. For them Jesus looked like God, but he couldn't have been God because God wouldn't come in human form. 
Jesus looked like a man, but he was only a ghost, a phantom, not, not real. And in one sense, it doesn't seem that big a deal that they're denying that Jesus came in human form. They're denying the incarnation. But as we've gone through this letter, we've seen there are huge implications for that denial, that lie. In the end, it means they reject their own sinfulness. I don't need a substitute. They say, I don't need someone to pay the price for me. I'm fine. They deny God's way of salvation. When Jesus of Nazareth says, I am the way, the truth and the life, they say, not for me, you're not. And if Jesus isn't Lord, if Jesus of Nazareth is not King, God's Son, then you can ignore his words. You can ignore his commands. That was the way the liars were at work when John first wrote this letter and to be honest, nothing has changed. These are still the very same means that Satan uses to lie amongst God's people. We deny that Jesus is Lord and it takes many forms, whether it be denying sinfulness. And you see this in all sorts of ways amongst the Christian community. There was a, uh, an idea going around a few decades ago that still bubbles to the surface from time to time that was called sinless perfection. That as a Christian you could get to the point uh, in your Christian life where you, you were free from sin. You didn't sin anymore, you, you were over that, that was in the past. But if you remember a few weeks ago as we looked at the start of uh, 1 John as we saw that the one who says he has no sin is a liar. Well the other side of uh, denying sinfulness is, is the attitude that says that what Jesus gets us is relationship with God but then what we need to do is to keep racing as hard as we can to please God. That if we do enough good works that maybe at the end of time when he sees us he will be happy enough with us. Or there are those who deny Jesus' commands, happy to have Jesus as their saviour as long as he doesn't compromise the way they live. The most obvious example of that within our own Christian community, the Anglican community, is the whole issue of human sexuality which seems to be ripping apart the Anglican church. I'm happy to have Jesus as my Lord as long as he doesn't tell me how to express sexuality, as long as I don't have to listen to what the Bible says about that. Or there are those who deny that Jesus is the only way. He is our way, but not the only way. And I imagine you have uh, many thoughts in your mind, many examples that you have come across, but in the end let me say that all of them come down to one simple thing as far as John is concerned. They deny that Jesus is Lord. If he's not Lord, then my sin is not serious. If he's not Lord, then there are other ways to God but him. If he's not Lord, then I don't have to listen to him. Or certainly when I don't want to. But what John is showing us is to deny that, is to deny reality. I mean, that's what a lie is at its heart, isn't it? It doesn't change reality. It just denies it. Now I try uh, not to lie very often uh, but from time to time I have to admit over, over the years I have lied and one of, the, one of the ones I am most embarrassed about I am now going to confess before you all to make the point that it denies reality. Back in uh, my uni years for some reason I decided I went through a phase with some friends uh, called my uh, cigar smoking phase. Now I'm not a smoker, I've never been a smoker, I'm still not a smoker but there was a year or so there where, where for some reason we decided cigar smoking 
was a very clever thing to do. But uh, I hadn't quite worked out how to smoke a cigar and when we did this a few times together I felt like an idiot because they all knew what they were doing and I had no idea what I was doing. I just ended up feeling sick. So what I decided to do one afternoon is that in, my, in the uh, comfort of my own bedroom, sitting at my desk, is to smoke a cigar, to practice, to learn how to do it. And now the problem with cigars is they take forever to smoke, hours. And so I spent hours sitting in my room with the door closed, the windows closed, puffing away on this thing. Eventually my parents arrive home and I was oblivious to the fact that my entire room was covered <laughs> in smoke. And uh, mum comes in and she says, what have, you, have you been smoking in this room? I said, no, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> and she says, but there's no one else here. I said, oh, well, that, that was Sam, Sam North, my, my friend from university. He's uh, just left. We, we were chatting and uh, he insisted upon smoking in my bedroom. And I said, okay. Now, uh, that passed and so did my cigar smoking phase. But uh, years later, a man by the name of Sam North started writing sports articles for the Sydney Morning Herald and my mother came in proudly one, one morning and showed me this article and said, your friend Sam is writing for the paper. Years later, finally having to own up that there was no Sam North, or at least I didn't know that Sam North. (laughs) Now the reason I tell you that is that as I stood in my room, as I come up with this ridiculous story about Sam North, as, as elaborate as it was, as clever as it was, I was very proud of myself at the time, it didn't change the fact. And it's the same with denying that Jesus is Lord. You can say it to your blue in the face, but no amount of fancy footwork or clever words or arguments or reason or spiritual experiences or bells or smells or piety or you name it can change the fact that God has raised him Lord and Christ. That's the reality. The antichrists amongst the Christian community lie. And the second thing that John says they do, we see in verses 23 and verse 19, they leave Now, I've got to be honest, as I was preparing this passage, this is the one I found most helpful. Because one of the challenges of false teaching amongst the Christian community is that it it doesn't seem to be something that happens apart from us. It happens right amongst us. And this is what this passage helped me to understand. Have a look at it, verse verse 19 especially. It shatters the illusion that just because a false teacher hasn't physically left the Christian community doesn't mean that they haven't left that community. We know uh, this first attribute that that John has shown us. We, We know when someone's a liar. We know when they're denying Jesus' lordship, they're lying to us. We know when they claim to be without sin, that they're lying to us and deceiving themselves. But do we acknowledge this second characteristic John describes in verse 19 and 23? To deny Jesus as Lord is not only to lie about that, but to break fellowship with God and with his people. It is to walk away, to desert it. False teaching at its heart is an act of desertion. We are told again and again in the Christian community that the differences of opinion are healthy that conjecture is okay, that diversity is a sign that we're mature. Well, that might be true when it comes to what colour the next pew cushion should be 
or whether to play the next song on the organ or the piano, but when it comes to who Jesus is, the question of the last hour, then no diversity is possible. Jesus is either Lord or he is not. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. You either bow the knee before him and in him find safety or you wait for the crushing blow of his judgement. There is no in-between. John says if you deny Jesus and his lordship, you see it there in verse 23, you have no claim of God. You've walked away from him. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking in 1 John 1-4 about what fellowship was and we saw that at its heart it was to be face to face with God and his son. What John is telling us here in verse 23 is you can't walk up to the father and say we're in fellowship, let's just ignore your son, let's just take him out of the equation. God will not have a bar of that. To reject Jesus is to desert God, John says. And on top of that, you see in verse 19, to reject Jesus is to desert his people and fellowship with his people. John says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. And as I said before, one of the great mistakes of modern Christianity is that we think just because a false teacher hasn't physically left our community, that they must still be part of that community. And we end up defining unity around ourselves rather than around Christ. And we draw the circle of our fellowship ever wider so that we can embrace as many as possible under the banner of Christian. To do anything else seems narrow and bigoted. And we long for unity, to be one church, and we'll pay almost any price for it. And why shouldn't we? The Bible says to make every effort to keep your unity. But what we forget is that unity is in Christ. We have no fellowship with God or with each other apart from him. As John, uh, 1, 1 John 1, 4 says, our fellowship, our table fellowship is with the Father and the Son. That's where we're sitting around tonight, with him. Take him out of the equation and we're just a rabble. So John says, if you reject Jesus, then you reject his people. They have left, he says. And what Satan wants from us as a Christian community, like nothing else, is to chase after them, to draw the circle wider, to become passionate about unity and indifferent about Christ's honour. And so we make steps of conciliation towards false teachers, not knowing that every step we take in that direction is a step away from our Lord We strengthen our unity and dim his lordship. Any Christian community that does that, says John, suddenly finds itself indistinguishable from the world around her and she and her distorted message and her garbled unity will go the way of the world. She will pass away. Well, there's John's picture of the liar among us. But secondly, what he gives us is how we can make sure that we are not amongst that, that we are not one of those. How do we know that we're not? How, do we, how can we be sure? As Christians, as we face up to the Antichrist among us, as, as we face up to those who lie about our Lord, it's easy to get worried, isn't it? But John has written this letter so we can be completely confident. And so do you see what he says of us in verse 20? But you have an anointing from the Holy One. 
Now that line in and of itself should take away any fear you have regarding false teaching. The Holy One, Jesus himself, has claimed you. You are his. He is the King. The word anointing here simply refers to that moment when the Spirit comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit. The minute you come to trust Jesus, the minute you declare that he is Lord, that Spirit is poured into your very heart. And now that this has happened, you belong to God and no one can take you away, says John. You see, it's the opposite of the Antichrist among us. We too are marked, but not by the Antichrist, but by God himself. And we too have traits in the same way that their traits are to lie and to leave. The Christian knows the truth and remains. Have a look at it there in our passage. The Christian knows the truth. We have seen the spirit in the heart of someone who denies Christ's lordship as a spirit controlled by the Antichrist, but the opposite is true as well. A heart that declares that Jesus is Lord is prompted to do so by God's very spirit working in them. No one who says that Jesus is Lord can do so except by the spirit. And so if you are someone who knows that, if you are someone who trusts in Jesus as Lord, know that the spirit is in you. It would be impossible for you to say that otherwise. If you know Jesus as Lord, you have received this anointing that John speaks of. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that ordered creation, the same spirit who put faith in your heart will continue to testify to the truth about Jesus so that you will grow in love and obedience to him. That's the great job of the Holy Spirit. He guides us into God's truth. He guides us with the witness of the apostles, the word of God. The Spirit speaks through the likes of John to guide us to know who Jesus is and how to respond. The Christian knows the truth. And secondly, in verse 23, the Christian remains. Knowing the truth with confidence is what the Christian life is all about. And we know it as we have seen because of this Spirit's testimony which means that we remain in fellowship with Jesus and his people. The Christian knows the one they have believed and they stick with him. It's that simple. The problem for the false teacher is that they have never seen Jesus for who he really is. Did you hear that reading we had uh, earlier in our service? Revelation chapter 1, this glorious picture of our Lord only when you see Jesus for who he is do you realise there is nowhere else to go. It is as the Apostle Peter said when all around him were deserting Jesus and Jesus wants to know why he too is not leaving he said Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as we uh, finish looking at this passage let me remind you why John is writing this letter He's writing it to us not to scare us about the Antichrist or those he sends among us. He's writing it so that we have complete confidence to know with joy that the, uh, the relationship we have with the Son, with the Lord, is authentic and it will go the distance. And so in this last hour, as this passage finishes, he gives us two commands to keep, two things that will guard this precious fellowship that he has won for us. 
And really the two commands come down to one word, remain, remain. It's interesting, isn't it? If you look at the Antichrist, everything seems so busy. They're they're lying and they're leaving. It's all very active. But what the Christian is meant to do is just stay put. Don't move. And so we see that. He gives us two things that we are meant to remain in or have remain in us. You see it there, verse 24. Firstly, let the word of God remain in you. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, eternal life. John says that what you have heard from the beginning, in other words, the gospel given to us by the apostles, the gospel spoken by those who saw and heard and touched and listened to Jesus, Listen to that. Let that word remain in you. For it is God's word about his son. And the word here, remain, literally means to set up home, a permanent thing. It's it's to abide. John says if you want to keep going as a Christian, then it's quite simple. Let the truth about God, the truth about his son, set up home in your heart. Not just visit from time to time. Let it set up home. The only way to remain in fellowship with God is to have his word dwell in our hearts. I was thinking about that this week and we've, uh, Liz and I have had uh, some friends come to visit from Australia and they're here for about six weeks and it's, it's at that sort of time period where it's not just someone coming over for dinner where maybe you have them around the dinner table, maybe if they're lucky they get to see the lounge room but when it's that sort of length in time all of a sudden you realise they've got the run of the house and that you, you welcome them into your home, they're, they're your co-dwellers for six weeks. They're, they're amongst you tonight, so uh, look out for some Australian accents. But I was thinking about it and I was thinking that's exactly what we've got to do with God's word. It, rather than sort of let it into the front room where we sort of every now and then allow God's word to enter our lives, to say you have the run of the house. Your word has the run of the house. In fact, it runs the house. It tells the house how to behave. And so again and again and again we are to invite that word into our hearts. And you see here, it's not a new word, is it? It's not some flashy new idea. It's the word we've heard from the beginning, the apostolic gospel. Our job is simple. Keep learning the old, old story. The story about the cross. The story about that resurrection. The story about our Lord and Saviour. That's why we're going to celebrate communion together, not because we can't think of something new to do, but because this is the word that we need to have abide in our hearts. And Satan wants nothing more for us than that we grow tired of that word, that we want something new, that we grow tired of hearing about what our God is like, about what he has done for us. And it's easy, isn't it, to grow tired of the word, to want some new angle, some new gimmick, new perspective on the whole thing. Not wanting our faith to become sort of bookish and laboured and tired. But we only think that way if we fail to realise what words we are listening to. They are the words of eternal life, verse 25 tells us. They are forever words. We should never outgrow our need for them. And finally, he gives us this second command, verse 26 and 27. Let God's spirit remain in you. In the Old Testament, kings and priests 
would receive an anointing from God as a symbol that he was with them, that he had equipped them from the task they had ahead of them. Well, John says the same of us in this passage. Having received God's spirit, we have everything we need to stay with him. It is the spirit who first taught us of who Jesus was, who he is and what he has done for us. And it is the same spirit that will keep teaching our hearts. Do you see what it says in this passage? You have no need for any other teacher. It means every time you hear a sermon, every time you read the Bible, every time you're doing one-to-one with someone, every time you're singing a song which has the word of God in it, the very spirit of God is the greatest teacher. He is in your heart saying, this is true. Jesus is Lord. Let his word have run of the house. Let his spirit have run of the house, says John. It's great assurance, isn't it, here in this last hour as the Antichrist is thrashing around like the guy at the side of the pool trying to pull in as many as possible. We have everything we need. If you have the word of God in your hand and the spirit of God in your heart, You can be sure of the truth. You can be sure of your relationship with God. I was thinking about that extra time uh, image at the end of a a football game where where you've got these teams running around desperately trying to do something. I remember seeing a game of uh, Australian rules once, a similar thing where you've got a a few moments left on the clock and you've got one, one team who was desperately behind, no chance of winning, and yet they were still trying as hard as they could and playing roughly and things like that, and all of a sudden one of the people from the winning side was knocked over by this guy on the opposition who was losing, who was desperate to win, desperately angry that he was losing. The guy on the winning side pulled him up, turned him round and pointed at the scoreboard and said, look at the scoreboard. Well, that's the Christian hope as well. Whatever Satan throws at us, whatever Antichrist he sends into our midst to say something that is wrong about our Lord. Whatever way he tries to get us to distract ourselves from the victory that has already been won, we turn and we say to him, look at the scoreboard. Look at the scoreboard. Let's pray.